I mean, an interview is in a lot of ways like a conversation, but it's heightened. It's heightened because you're coming together and you're, you, it's kind of this tacit agreement that it's, it's a performance in a way. You both are sort of, you know, trying to raise your game to make something significant in a way that people would want to listen to. Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Steve Paulson, executive producer and one of the founders of the beloved NPR radio show To the Best of Our Knowledge. Steve has been a contributing writer for Salon.com, Slate, Huffington Post, and The Atlantic. He came to Esalen to teach about the intersection between science and spirituality, but he came to me to teach about the art of the interview. I picked his brain as best as I could because this guy is very, very good at what he does. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with master interviewer, Steve Paulson. I think you're just a wonderful, brilliant interviewer. And well, thank, I wanted, you. Thank, you, thank you. I wanted to ask you, how many interviews do you think that have you done? Well, for the radio show that I do, to the best of our knowledge, um, that has been going for 27 years, and I was one of the people who started it. And, uh, oh, I do well, at least one a week for that. I probably do several a week, uh, and I did interviews before that. So that I don't know. I, I can't do the math in my head, but I've done, I've done thousands of interviews. I started, uh, I was in grad school, going to journalism school at the University of Wisconsin, and uh, it was, I was doing print, and there was a community radio station that was in town in, in Madison, and WORT, and, which I loved, and I just started volunteering there, and I started doing interviews there. Okay, cool. Well, can you tell me some of the, the rookie mistakes that you used to make uh, as a young interviewer that you don't make now? Sure. <laughs> oh, there are a whole bunch. <laughs> Oh, there are all kinds. I mean, some are not really knowing what I wanted to ask, sort of, or or trying to kind of figure out what the question was while I was asking the question, and uh, so that would be kind of incoherent by the time it came out. One would be sometimes I would just ask too too broad a question and get just sort of abstractions for answers. And over the years, I've kind of learned to kind of to press for the concrete, to press for the personal. I'd say the biggest thing that I've really learned over the years, probably it took years, is uh, to really feel like I own the space so that I am the one who is... Uh, I'm in, in control of the interview, which, which is not an, an egotistic kind of thing. It's not that I want to talk a lot more, but it's more that I'm setting the terms for what we talk about. And and I think that and, you know, a lot of a lot of the interviews I do are with people with very distinguished philosophers and scientists and intellectuals who know a lot more than I do about the thing that we're talking about. But. I have to understand it and it has to make sense to me and it has to be working in the conversation and and just having that kind of, I guess you might say confidence or just that. And and I think actually the the, the guest appreciates that, likes that. And I'd say that's sort of the big thing. And then there's sort of more uh, kind of technical things about, you know, knowing when to, to jump in, to, uh, to interrupt, you could say, if the person is going on for a long time, so it's more interactive. And so they're kind of, um, they're sort of littler things, and then there are big things, I think, in terms of what makes an interview come alive. Yeah, tell me about that, because I noticed during your, your interviews that you seem to have some sort of gift for interjecting. And it's sort of like, right when there's the, the time when I wanted some um, elaboration uh, from the speaker, you come in with a question, and not before that. 
Mm-hmm. So how do you know how much of it is deliberate and how much of it is sort of like instinctual? I think a lot of it is instinctual. Um, I, I wait for a pause. I wait for like the, a breath maybe when, and a part of it is, I mean, part of it is just a sense of, okay, this person's been talking for a long time. And even if it's really interesting, you just, in terms of just sort of sonic diversity in a way, I mean, just, you, you want interaction in an interview and you want, and, and my particular style of doing interviews is I like it to be more conversational. So I don't want to just hear a lecture, even if the person is really good. Uh, but I just, you know, I want some back and forth. And of course it depends on the guest. So, you know, that works better with other people. I actually think it works better face to face because I probably most of the interviews that I do are not face to face. I mean, most of them, uh, the people go into a studio somewhere else, whether it's New York or San Francisco or London or wherever. Um, I mean, which is fine. I mean, you can do a perfectly good interview, but I think just having that kind of eye contact, it just, it adds a little, a bit of intimacy. Yes. I think there's something about the physical space, uh, of audio where the physical space is, is very much felt almost felt in its absence. And I wanted to ask you about the interaction between you and the guest when you are face to face. Mm-hmm. Like how far away uh, are you typically from your from your guest? Uh, well, we're probably sitting what about four feet apart from each other. Usually, we're a little further away. I mean, it's just a table in a studio. It's six feet, seven feet, something like that. But uh, five feet. It, I don't think it matters very much. Sometimes when I do interviews, if I'm kind of out in the field, so not in a radio studio, I will be you know holding a microphone and we'll just kind of go back and forth. So we're sitting knee to knee. Are you conscious of the way that you appear, the way that you look during an interview? Are you giving the person who you're talking to signals with your eyes? Or is this sort of an unconscious uh, thing that you do? It's probably more unconscious. I, I think I nod. I know you can tell me. I mean, we're, you know, we are face to face right now. So right, you can tell me. <laughs> uh, most of it is unconscious, I would say, because most of it is... I'm, I'm more following the conversation, what's being said rather than, you know, looking. So I have a couple more interview questions for you, but I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about, uh, the focus of your course here at, at Esalen this weekend. I wonder if you, if you could speak about what you're presenting. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, leading a, a workshop called can science be sacred? And this is really, it's kind of the culmination of my particular area of interest, I would say that I've been focused on a lot for about the last 10 to 12 years or so. And it came out of, uh, I did a a journalism fellowship that uh, really dived pretty deeply into science and religion, the science and religion debate. And that spun off into all kinds of different areas for me. And I've, I've just been obsessed about that in all kinds of different ways. And so I'm very interested in, in debates over the nature of consciousness uh, where does consciousness come from? Because I actually think that is the key question in the science and religion debate. It's not about evolution. You know, it's like, how do you read the Bible? That, that's not the, the thing that's interesting intellectually. What's interesting is, can science tell us anything about uh, near-death experiences or psychedelic experiences or the paranormal or the stuff that would challenge the conventional neuroscience model of the brain-mind problem. So that's one of the things that we'll be talking about. I'm interested in how far how far science can take us in telling us what's real. What is the nature of reality? And will you be presenting from interviews that you have done along the um, along these topics? Yeah. So I have been uh, picking up kind of Steve's greatest hits in a way, <laughs> boiled down into 
anywhere from one to three or four minute segments, excerpts. And so I've, I've pulled probably, oh, maybe 60 different interviews. I mean, very short bits of everyone from, uh, oh, biologist E.O. Wilson to uh, Rupert Sheldrake, sort of this maverick biologist, to Oliver Sacks, the neurologist who died recently, talking about his psychedelic experiences, Jane Goodall, who's one of my heroes, uh, to um, some people talking about uh, seminal figures and kind of the history of what I would call sort of the intersection between science and spiritual experience, like William James or... Uh, Carl Jung, and so I'm kind of covering the waterfront in a lot of ways. I'm also very interested in the the experience of awe and wonder, and particularly how that plays out in nature. And uh, there's some sort of fascinating stories in that area. I mean, it, to the point of going back to Jane Goodall, there's, there's a question of whether chimpanzees have spiritual experiences. There's actually kind of a debate about that among animal scientists, which is quite fascinating. Where does Goodall come out on, on that one? Oh, she says yes. And she says, oh, Jane Goodall is just fascinating in so many ways. Uh, so years ago, she observed what's been called the waterfall dance, where chimpanzees were, you know, they're sort of traveling along and they come along, come by a waterfall and some of them will be, will start acting out and will will do one of two things, either become very sort of aroused with their hair bristling on their neck, or will just sit very silently and just stare at the water. And her theory is that this is an experience of awe. And then she takes this one step further and she says, you know, that is probably where the origin of animistic religion came from for humans or for human ancestors. And so, I mean, she doesn't have any proof about that. That's speculative. And, and she also says, uh, you know, I would give anything to, to be inside the mind of a chimpanzee for just a few minutes. I would just, it would, I would give anything for that. And, you know, she spent her life kind of studying that. So, and that's sort of one piece of that. And this is, it's a mystery. I mean, we'll probably never know that, but it's totally fascinating. Now, were these interviews called from, to the best of our knowledge, or are they things that, that occurred on the, on the side? Pretty much all, to the best of our knowledge, yeah. So, but I mean, that's everything I do is sort of in one way or another. I'm going to try to feed it into to the best of our knowledge. So, so I, I mean, basically, I am always chasing after people who I think are fascinating, and I'll, you know, one way or another, work it into to the best of our knowledge. Yeah, I like the format of the show because it it, it sort of envelops many many things. I wonder if you could just um, explain what the format of the show is for listeners who might not have heard it. Sure. We take a theme for an hour and we uh, usually do about five interviews over the course of an hour and uh, different kinds of interviews. And so some are kind of big think interviews with uh, maybe a philosopher or scientist, sort of, you know, you go pretty deep. Some are, might be more of a, a personal story. Uh, we try to bring in some production in a way so that it's not just straight talking, but there's maybe music or sound design mixed in. And I think of it a little bit like, uh, let's say you're reading a magazine and you have the big feature sec feature stories and then you have the little sidebar stories and you have the little columns and it's or it's like a meal. You know, you have the the appetizer, the main course, the dessert. And that's kind of the way we try to construct to the best of our knowledge. So it's different flavors, different tastes. So and very multidisciplinary. So we don't want to just have the same kind of interview over and over, but we want to come at a subject from kind of unexpected ways and that it would that the the sum is more than the uh, 
what, what's the word? Uh, the, <laughs> uh, it's more than the, the sum of the parts. Uh, yes. And in a sense, the sound design is really crucial. Um, it's subtle and, and yet there's this sort of running aesthetic, um, uh, element to the show that ties the, uh, the, the disparate parts together, which I, how long have you been using sound design into the best of our knowledge? We've been using it for years, and that's really the credit goes to our technical director, our sound designer, a guy named uh, Joe Hartke. And then before that, uh, the person was Kirill Owen, and they were the ones who really have created the sound. So it's, I mean, the thing about to the best of our knowledge is it's a team of about six people or so, and it's like, you know, people bringing together their particular skills and sensibilities. And so the sound design is really from these people who are just total wizards. Yes. So you spoke earlier about this. Um, something you've been able to do across the years is know what you're going to say uh, rather than try to develop what you're saying at, while you're speaking it. Right. Um, so it kind of leads me to, to ask you about your research um, practices. What is it, it, it? I listened to a bunch of interviews that you did. And it seems you're studied in these in each topic, and I'm I'm wondering, is it a monumental task uh, to do the research? I wonder if you could speak about it. I think it depends on who I'm talking to. So there's some who. I don't do a ton of research. I mean, I might uh, read up on the person for a half an hour or an hour, and other people. It's it sort of depends on sort of what how big the stakes are for for that particular person. So some I would consider big interviews, and so I will spend days, even weeks, uh, preparing for the interview. I mean, I might be reading a book. It might be, uh, I often, for, for the interviews that I sort of put a lot of time into, I will, I'll do fairly extensive research, uh, you know, do searches of other interviews, profiles that have been written about the person. I'll try to figure out, I'm, I'm looking for my way in to, to that conversation. And, and especially if the person's been interviewed a lot, uh, I don't want to just repeat what's been done before. So is there some particular, can I do anything new? And can I, can I get the person to say something new? And that's especially important, I would say, if the person's been interviewed a lot or, you know, sometimes some of the bigger name people I talk to have been on a book tour and those are, those aren't always great because you feel like, oh, they're just, they have their kind of steady thing to say. And so how do you pierce through that? How, you know, how do you get them to say something new and, and something that I would actually care about? Do you work on a, a set of questions beforehand? And is it the kind of thing where you have it written out in front of you or do you memorize it? I have it written out in front of me and it, I may or may not refer to it. So I'll, I'll, I'll refer to some of it. I probably, if it's face to face, I'll refer to it less because it's, I don't know, it seems kind of rude to look down and look at your questions when the person's right in front of you. You're both having a conversation. You're sort of in the moment with a person, but there's another part of your mind just thinking about, okay, where do I want to go next? And, and also there are times when I'm, I'm editing the interview in my head, uh, because I know, okay, I know this, this is sort of, eh, it's not really going anywhere. We'll, we'll play that out and then we'll get to the next thing that I really want to, to talk about. How do you redirect an interview that you feel like the, the connection is lacking between you and your subject or there may, it may be off the point? You may feel that you're just simply not getting what you need. Is there a way? How do you recalibrate? Sometimes I just stop and say, can we do that again? Or which I think is totally legitimate, and I and I will say that there's a huge difference between doing an interview that you know is on tape and one that's live, and the rules are really quite different. And so, because I used to do a lot of live interviews, like I would host call and talk shows, 
So in that case, really every minute counts and you, you can't waste time. You have to sort of, you know, be very direct. Whereas if you're doing a taped interview, you're not under that kind of time pressure. And so you can go off on tangents in a way. And also there are times when you're just, you're not really getting what you want. And sometimes I'll just, I will actually sometimes just stop the interview and say, you know, I really need us to talk about this or, 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 you know, I read, or maybe I've, I've asked um, someone to tell a story and the person didn't really tell it very well. And I'll stop and say, you know, I really, you know, you, you, you talked about this in the, uh, in your book and I really want you to go in more detail about it. So I can be very directive at times. Yes. And do you find that people want to perform? Yes, they do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, the, What's happening in an interview, especially for if if you're both into it, is it's a performance in a way, and you're both trying to bring your A game, and you're trying to bring it out of each other, and so you're trying to, and and I I mean I think when the interview is is really going well, you know, the best interviews are when something surprising happens. You know, it's you didn't know that you were going to go there necessarily, or I'm asking a question, I don't really know what the person's going to say. I might have a guess about it. And then the other person is sort of, you know, if they see that you are engaged and coming back to the research question, I, th- I think that, you know, people like to know that, you know, you've done your research and they will, they will put more into it. They'll get, put more effort into it. And they want to sound good. And so the, the whole, I mean, my, my point in doing interviews is I want to bring up the best of that person or the most interesting of that person. And I'm typically not interviewing politicians. So I'm not, it's not a gotcha kind of thing. I'm not trying to get them to say something stupid. You know, I want to bring out the best of them. Um, it seems like you're characterized by some curiosity. In fact, uh, in one of the to the best of our knowledge, uh, episodes that I listened to your wife, Anne said, Steve Paulson is always curious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of my MO. Yeah. And do you find that that sense of curiosity kind of, um, engages the, the person, uh, who, who you're speaking with, they, they find it refreshing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's what, I mean, especially the kind of people who I tend to talk to are more of the you know, the thoughtful kind of people. And, and I particularly like interviews that tend to get a little more philosophical. And so, I mean, that's, I think the curiosity feeds into that. What do you do if there's something that's somewhat out of your, um, out of your realm? Like I listened to a wonderful interview that you did with, with Philip Glass. And I don't know whether you're a Philip Glass aficionado. Not especially. He, he ended up speaking with kind of great precision about his artistic practice and, and about the difference between jazz and, and classical music. So how do you get into that uh, point of view where you can go there? You know, that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting question uh, because I'm a jazz fan. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm not an expert in jazz in, to any extent at all, but, but I listen to, jazz is mostly what I listen to. I'm not especially knowledgeable of classical music. And so if, if the interview starts to get very musical in a technical sense, I'm going to get lost really fast, but that's not really where I want to go. And that's, I don't think where the listener would want to go. And so, but there's always a human element to that. And there's, so if I'm remembering the Philip Glass interview, there were, it was just a really interesting backstory that he had about sort of the role that music played in his life. And then he has, he has his whole spiritual journey that he's gone himself. Uh, and there are a few similarities between, I mean, like he was a huge Herman Hesse fan at one point as I was. Uh, and then this whole business, I mean, a lot of what interested me the most about that was how he created 
a creative space for himself. I mean, as, as I recall, he had sort of a very set period where he would work on his music. Yeah, he'd work from 10 to 1 every day. <laughs> right. And then, you know, most of his career, I mean, up until age, I don't know, 40 or whatever, he was a plumber or he was a taxi driver and, you know, Philip Glass, you know, doing this other stuff. And I just, I thought that was wild. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It seems like somehow, and maybe this is through the repetition, maybe this is through 27 years of interviewing people, but you seem to be gifted in pulling out anecdotes and pulling out wisdom um, from people like, for instance, I listened to the interview you did with John Carlos. Is that the mm-hmm. right name? He's yep. the, uh, the activist who gave the Black Power salute during the, right. on the, the 68 Olympics. Yeah. And he had a lot to say. Yeah. He was, he was a force of nature. And that was, that was one of the interviews that was in studio. He came through Madison and whew, you could just, you could feel his energy. Yeah, there, there's something to the art of speaking with people that um, either they're going to come through with their very special uh, wisdom or it's going to be somewhat wooden. And I'm sort of that's what I'm trying to get to um, in this interview in, in a very inarticulate kind of way by peppering you with all these. <laughs> Not inarticulate at all, I might add. So I think it's I mean, a lot of it is just trying to figure out where their passion comes from. And to find a little way into that. And, part, and, you know, I think a lot of people, and it's not even just about an interview. I mean, an interview is in a lot of ways like a conversation, but it's heightened. Mm-hmm. It's heightened because you're coming together and you're, you, it's kind of this tacit agreement that it's, it's a performance in a way. You both are sort of, you know, trying to raise your game to make something significant in a way that people would want to listen to. And so I think the thing that I can bring in is you know, good questions, you know, framing the conversation well and somehow triggering that passion that, in this case, John Carlos. Oh, he had plenty of it. <laughs> I recommend everybody to listen to that, uh, that John Carlos uh, interview. Let's, let's talk about self-editing because I find for these podcasts, I'm often editing out my voice when I find that it, it didn't sound like I wanted to sound like. What's your process with editing? Are you editing your own pieces? I usually do. Not always, but usually, yeah. Well, part of it is a time question. And so for our radio show, typically our interviews will go after editing, maybe anywhere from eight to 12 minutes or so. And sometimes they go longer, sometimes even shorter. So a lot of it is just uh, boiling it down and sort of, you know, trying to distill the essence of it. So there, there's sort of that side of it is, you know, trying to bring out what's the best. And some, I mean, there's the old saying that good tape ends up on the cutting room floor, which happens all the time. You know, you lose good stuff. And I mean, just given the time constraints of, of what I'm dealing with. So that's one side of it. And the other side of it is, I mean, just at a more technical editing side, there's, you know, there's actually, there's this sort of interesting, there are interesting philosophies of how much people edit. Some people edit really tightly. They they cut out all the ums and ahs. And I, I have a few verbal tics that really annoy me when I listen back. Like I say, you know, a lot, or I mean a lot. I mean, it's just, it drives me crazy, when, but I, I can't control it. It's just, <laughs> just the way I talk. So I, I sometimes, I, sometimes I'll edit some of those because I think, you know, you, Steve, you really could sound a little smarter. Uh, so, but then, but also you don't want to clean things up too much because you, you know, a certain amount of rawness is, you know, it adds to the authenticity. So it's, it's, it's very much a, a balance. Yes. What about your voice timber? Is that something that is natural or it's something that can actually be worked on? 
I'm sure it could be worked on, but I've never tried to work on it. Do you ever think about national public radio as just this agglomeration of people with pleasant uh, voice timbers? Oh, I mean, there are all kinds of jokes about, you know, you know, the, uh, I mean, yeah, the joke is, you know, I'm driving in the car and I'm, you know, turning the dial and, you know, it's like, how fast can you tell it's the NPR station? Usually it's in about three seconds because it's just, there's that NPR sound and which is, it's both something that I like and yet it's all, I mean, you, it's really easy to make fun of. <laughs> what do you think of the <laughs> subtext of the, of the tone? Is it, it's, there's a warmth, there's a familiarity, there's almost, almost a sensuality of voice that, that comes through with the phone. Yeah. And there's a certain genteel aspect and people are really nice or really serious or, and you know, people in NPR are trying to get away from that. I mean, there, there's a recognition within NPR that it's like, it's this homogeneous kind of sound, usually very white. Uh, you know, there's a certain kind of demographic that's the traditional NPR voice. And, and that's a problem because that does not represent, you know, all of, all of America. And so there's, a, I think, a fairly conscious effort to kind of not have this, you know, very homogeneous kind of NPR voice. Do you ever meet people who know you as a voice and then they meet you as a, sure. as a face? What sure. is it like uh, for them? What do they relate to you? You know, it, I mean, there's it's the you know the joke about radio, of course, is if they've never met you before, it's like, oh, you look like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it's it's fun. You know, it's fun to to meet someone they've listened to, and it's and I will say from the other side, it's fun for me to listen to 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 meet people who who turn out to be fans of the radio show because, you know, the weird thing about doing radio, and I don't know if you've had this experience, is for the most part, I'm just sitting in my studio, just. Most of my interviews are actually not even face to face. Most of the time they're in off in some studio, like thousands of miles away. And it's just my own little private existence. And I'm just, you know, talking to, you know, an em to empty walls. And then, and then every so often I meet people and I think, oh, wow, you know, people, I mean, of course I know people listen to the show, but it's not at a sort of visceral emotional sense until you go out and you meet people or like every so often we do live shows, you know, and with, in front of hundreds of people. And that's, that's a kick. It's just, cause it's cool. a, just, it's just a totally different experience. I wonder if you have had this experience that it's something that happens to me all the time, but I am, I'm editing, I'm always editing these. Um, and I'm falling in love with the person's voice. It's sort of like we've had our, yeah. um, physical one-on-one -on -one interaction where I interviewed them and it's usually really nice, but it's over in an hour. And then I have a, a deeper, more intimate experience with the, the words that they've said when I listen to it over and over and, and, you know, edit and rich. I love editing. I, I, I think editing is kind of a meditative experience in a way. And cause you're going back and you're sort of, you're, you're polishing it. I mean, I think of editing as it's sort of like, you know, doing a sculpture. Yes. I mean, not that I've ever made a sculpture, but it's what I imagine. You have this chunk of material and you keep whittling away. You're not really adding anything. Maybe you're adding some sound design, but mostly you're just whittling away to make it better, to to polish it. And I just, I love that. And just the going through and uh, yeah, just, you know, taking out a sentence here or there, shaping it, creating a narrative, figuring out the beginning and then the end. And it just, it's all, I, yeah, I find that very pleasurable. And it's just, that's one of those things where I could spend hours editing a tape, one interview and find it very it's enjoyable isn't, isn't even the right word. So I want to ask you, you, you ask these big questions, you address these, these almost unanswerable questions of spirituality and science. Do you feel uh, across the years, across the decades that you've been doing it, is, have you been approaching the truth? Like, like you've answered to some degree the, 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 some of these universal riddles that you're asking? 
mostly not. (laughs) I feel like I've gotten better about what questions to ask. And I feel like I have a sense of people's blind spots or biases in a way. I mean, most of the stuff that I'm interested, that I'm really interested in don't have answers or clear answers. Uh, I mean, because they're the, they're the big, they're the huge questions, you know, the, the sort of the philosophical, the metaphysical questions that people have been asking for thousands of years. But then, you know, you bring science into it and, you know, it, then it adds an extra dimension. So I am, I'm fascinated with the, the whole question of how far science can take us to understand certain things. And, and it really, it, and the answers are different, whether you're talking about cosmology or neuroscience or evolutionary biology. I mean, it plays out differently in every one of those things. And there are, and really the, the, the big issues that I'm interested in are where does transcendence fit into this? Where, where do we look for meaning or purpose? Can science tell us anything about meaning or purpose? That's one of the big subjects of this Esalen workshop I'm doing here. I think that's a really complicated question. Uh, and it's, which is different than saying, you know, what is the meaning of life? I mean, that's, that's kind of a pointless question, but in terms of, is there anything within kind of the cosmic order that is meaningful in itself? Uh, that's, that's a profound question. Yeah. What has it done to you, uh, uh, personally to, to meet with people, probe, ask questions, ultimately not get concrete answers. I mean, how does that shape and change you? It's opened me up. Uh, it has over the years, I, I'm by temperament, I'm more an observer. I'm, you know, I'm a journalist, uh, more than say a true believer. I have kind of a natural aversion to true believers. And yet I feel like I've had to kind of, uh, kind of, I don't know if it was a mask, but just be a little more open um, to to sort of reveal more of myself in a way. So some of that is on the radio. Some of that is it's not just on the radio. It's talking to people. It's, you know, because, you know, doing this kind of thing, people ask me, so what, Steve, what do you believe? And I felt like I wasn't very good at answering that question earlier. And I've, I've maybe gotten better about that. And, you know, in doing a, a workshop like this at Esalen, I mean, that'll come up. And, you know, I've got to be in there with the other people because I'm going to be asking them. I mean, the point of this is to to play a bunch of, you know, really provocative things that are saying with, you know, big name philosophers and scientists. But it's like, ultimately, it's what do we do with that? You know, how do we process that in our own lives? And, and part of that is, you know, what do I do with that? And so it's kind of, I mean, I sort of where I've come to, and there are several places that I've come to. One is I have become uh, less patient with strict materialists. Uh, I still, I interview lots, I interview lots of atheists and materialists, but I find that a lot of their answers just don't seem adequate for people's actual experience. I'm very interested in the whole notion of what I would call mystery, which again, a lot of scientists, they, they don't like that word. They, they think it's a cop-out. You know, it's like, oh, you're just going to say, oh, because we can't explain that now or science will never explain it. So bring God in to explain it. You know, it's the God of the gaps theory. And, but I think that's, I think it's actually fairly profound to be able to say, I don't know in a serious way, not just, oh, I don't know, but it, no. I don't know, and I don't know if we can ever know that this extraordinary thing happened. And what does that mean to live with the I don't know? And I, I think that's to live with with mystery at that sense. I mean, I think that's 
yeah, that goes pretty deep. And I'm still sort of trying to figure out what that means. What does your family think of your job? I think it depends on which family members you're talking about. <laughs> so my wife, Anne, Strange Champs, is the host of our show. So she has a front row seat in a lot of the stuff. And we share a lot of interests. Uh, I think we're we're there. And, you know, so she has kind of, we, we, we approach these things slightly differently. I mean, what's, I, what's her different bias? Uh, she thinks, oh, uh, she would say my sort of fascination with consciousness is, uh, it's probably like the gerbil getting on the wheel and maybe spinning around a lot. And is it really going anywhere? And I think she would go for more of the experiential side of things where I tend to kind of be more the head person, you know, sort of trying to, trying to explain things at an intellectual level. We have two kids, uh, who are, uh, 20 and 22 now. One just graduated from college. And I think earlier on when they were teenagers in high school, they kind of rolled their eyes. And you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of cool having parents who are in public radio. Uh, and then our, our daughter is actually thinking about going into journalism now. So, you know, the, uh, the apple doesn't always fall very far. Oh, that's pretty cool. For listeners who are new to, to the best of our knowledge, can you recommend like a can't miss episodes, something that might blow their minds. Just describe it just very quickly. Sure. We did a show recently about trees, which is one of my favorite shows from the last year. Uh, I just, I thought it was wonderful. And the centerpiece is with a writer and novelist named Richard Powers who wrote this fabulous novel called The Overstory, which is 500 pages long. And it's a combination of tree biology. He read over a hundred uh, books study. I mean, everything about how trees communicate and how they send out warning signals and I mean, communicate with other species, both through the air and through their root systems and how they have agency, how they can change the nature of soil. It's just, I mean, if you actually get into what trees do, it is astonishing. So anyway, we have an interview with him. We have an interview with Suzanne Samard, who is one of the uh, biologists whose, uh, whose research he used to write the book. And, uh, another piece about uh, sort of the history of the sequoias and was very troubled history because the, the Native Americans basically got pushed off their land so that we could have this national park. And uh, General Sherman, who is, you know, the, the name of, you know, the, the largest tree by volume in the world was actually an Indian hater. And, and it's just, it's incredibly, it's just like everything you wanted to know about trees and, and stuff that you never would have imagined. And it's kind of mind blowing. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> and General Sherman was renamed Karl Marx for a, yes. a short period of time, <laughs> a very short period. And then went back to General Sherman. Yes. What Steve is your secret superpower? What's something that you're really good at that not many people know about? I think it's sort of the, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have any superpowers, but I have, I have certain things that I can bring to the table, I think, which is, it's kind of this combination of curiosity and wanting to go really deep on some issues and yet make it accessible yes. so that you're not just talking to academics. And that's really what I see see myself doing is kind of being this bridge between sort of this, the more general public and, uh, and intellectuals. I feel like you have what a lot of very good documentarian film documentarians have. They're not afraid to, to probe, to, to go incisively, to explore deeply because there's something they believe deeply that that exploration 
can lead to uh, a benefit for many. That's everything to me is probing. And I mean, I will say, I mean, the great thing about doing interviews is I get to ask people the most personal questions that sometimes I don't even ask my closest friends. You know, it's like, so are you religious? Do you do? You, I used to ask, you know, do you believe in God? And you know, people can I don't ask my friends that over a dinner table or, you know, how much do you think about death or, you know, those those big things. But it's sort of like. I ask those, I mean, I figure, you know, you come and sit in front of a microphone, I get to talk about this stuff. Yeah. And I, to me, that's, that is this huge privilege that I just am immensely grateful for. Steve Paulson, thank you so much for joining us today on Voice of the Vessel. It's been a real pleasure. No, thanks, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldyn Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to rate us and write a review. You can also find all of our episodes at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Until next time, be well.